Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I have Nathan Assel with me today, and I am so excited to have him here. He is a bright, young, up-and-coming superstar in the field of financial therapy. He's constantly posting on social media about mental health, relationship health, and money and the intersection of all of those fields. So to have Nathan here on the podcast is so exciting for me. I know that he's full of energy and vibrancy about the topic of financial therapy. And so, uh, Nate, why don't you go ahead and lead us off and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I appreciate you having me. I, yeah, I, I geek out about money and um, couples specifically, but couples and money and trauma and all the fun things that to talk about. So, um, yeah, I guess background, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I am a certified financial therapist. Uh, my kind of main area, like you, Ed, is with couples and financial right. conflict and then um, I also do quite a bit of trauma work, so I use EMDR and other things like that to help people who are dealing with financial trauma symptoms as well. That's awesome, and I really hope that through this episode that you get to, we bring all of those things forward, and that's why I'm so excited to have you as a guest, because there are very few people that I know that um, are crossing all of those intersections of marriage and money and trauma, and then informed treatment approaches to that. And so we're going to dive deep into that. But I don't imagine you were always a money geek. Maybe you were. I don't know this part of you. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about how you've gotten to this place and why this is so important to you now? Yeah. um, No, I was not always a money geek. Um, I I kind of fell into this field backwards a little bit um, where I... I knew I wanted to work with people. I knew I wanted to work with couples. A lot of that came from my uh, my own parents' relationship and some of the conflict that they have and had. And when I personally got into my long-term relationship with my, my wife, Shelby, I could see the power of a good relationship in my life. Um, mm. When we have a you know a securely attached partner or a partner that can meet our needs and that is supportive it hugely impacts our personal mental health. It impacts our, you know, our life satisfaction. It, and for me, that was a really big thing. So um, I went to school to become a marriage and family therapist. And it was while I was at school here at uh, Kansas State University that I heard about the financial therapy program here. Um, and I always, you know, money was always interesting, an interesting piece of relationship dynamics, but it wasn't until I really, you know, started looking at my own personal money story and realizing like, oh, a ton of my parents' conflict was about money. It's about money and work and, you know, financial infidelity that had happened in their relationship that 
I internalize a lot of that as a kid. Um, if you if you let me share a quick story, I, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. When I was um, I was about eleven or so. So I grew up in a middle middle upper class home, um, and uh. that definitely also affects my money story and how I view it. But uh, right. my dad. You know, my dad bought a four wheeler, um, uh-huh. and he did so without telling my mom. And it was about, uh, you know, it's a significant purchase. It was like five thousand dollars or something at the time. And um, sure. my mom was furious, understandably, because yeah, that's that's a big thing not to just kind of like, oh, look at this. Um, and I remember as being a kid, and for me, it was just this cool toy, and I'm having a fun time. But I remember as a kid seeing them fight about it and then feeling guilty. That was like, is me enjoying this causing them to fight more? And it actually kind of was this pivotal, you know, financial flashpoint or time when I was like, man, money causes a lot of problems. And so for years on until honestly, until I got married and had to deal with money stuff um, in a relationship as well, I was like, oh, like I'm pretty money avoidant. This is this is not something that I like to talk about. This causes me anxiety and I get frustrated with it. And so anyway, that's kind of a personal example of, but we have money experiences that hugely impact our financial behavior and our, how we engage in our relationships too. Nate, that's such a powerful story. And I think it really exemplifies so much of what I I've found in my practice. And I imagine you find true as the couples you're working with is it's not always these extreme money experiences in the sense of like, I lived in chronic poverty, although that is certainly very challenging and and something to work through. And I don't imagine that was the only money conflict, right? But that's an example in your family. Mm -hmm. And you used a few different words that I want to slow down and really kind of define for the listeners. And so you talked about money avoidance and financial flashpoint. So can you define what those two words mean and how they fit in this story? I have some sense for it, but I'd love for people to really be able to stop and think about what is he saying? What is that? Because those words are critical in the field of financial therapy. We use them a lot. Yeah. So a financial flashpoint is any um, emotionally charged memory around money is the way I think about it. So um, it's a time... So that that time with the four wheeler, um, it brought up a lot of emotions for me, right. and because of that, it had a huge impact on how I viewed money. Um, you can kind of just think of like like a highlight reel of both good and bad times <laughs> of money memories, and it's a term coined by Brad Klontz, um, and he also was the one that created what's called the Klontz Money Script Inventory, which is an assessment that we use to look at different money beliefs. And one of the money beliefs that I mentioned was money avoidance, um, which is, you know, short version is, uh, well, as it sounds, you don't like talking about money. You try and avoid <laughs> right, it. Right. right. Um, sometimes some of the hidden beliefs underneath it is money is bad or rich people are greedy. Um, you know, money, is a root of problems and things like that. Um, so the, those are some of the uh, categories that I would define my beliefs as for a long time was I, I was, had money avoidance script yeah. or belief due to that financial flashpoint of the quad incident. 
Yeah. So the the quad incident, and I'm kind of thinking about this, like, you know, my first, I hear get a new four wheeler. I'm thinking exciting, fun, Mm -hmm. right? Which I think would be what most people would kind of want to think. But the the context of the story is that, uh oh, there's emotional incongruency here between dad's wanting one thing and to create maybe one experience around the four wheeler and mom's want like reacting differently. If we were to play this story out differently and maybe from a healthy love and money perspective, how would that story play out? What would it look like differently for people that are listening? How, how now, as you look back on it, if your folks had more of a optimal or healthy approach to it, how would the quad story gone differently? Uh, yeah, I think if I was, if I was my parents' therapist, which, is a very interesting <laughs> thing, by the way. Um, oh, oh, yeah. I obviously, well, I'm not sure if it's obvious. A huge start was they would need to talk about a major purchase like that together. And preferably before the purchase was made. Um, and not just talk about can we afford this and things like that, but what are what are the family values around it? Um why? Why was the four-wheeler something dad wanted to get? Was it just a toy? Was he trying to make memories? Was he trying to um, meet one of his own needs through buying the four-wheeler? What's the why behind the purchase? Um, and then going through each of their emotional responses to it, like maybe dad, this is exciting. Maybe mom doesn't have the same values around four-wheeling, necessarily but she does care about providing memories and maybe she's like i don't think that the four-wheeler is the most safe thing that i want our kids doing right now but i'm all for making memories and maybe there's something else that we could do that would fill this need and this this wish of yours um without doing this like a, a big part of it is just starting to talk about what is the reasoning behind the purchase I think you're highlighting something that's so interesting is being able to imagine that there might be multiple different psychological needs trying to be met by any one purchase, right? Mm -hmm. Is you kind of listed off a handful of different things about why dad might be motivated to get the four wheeler. It might be his own self interest. It might be pleasure for the kids. It might be uh, just a toy. He does. He's not even thinking about it. it. It could be a number of things and he would have to be here to ask him. Right. Right. And, and at the same time, uh, mom is going to have her own feelings about four-wheelers. And what I really liked you describing is ideally a couple is going to recognize and start to articulate and just figure out what are these different values that we have that motivate our purchases. And then how do we find that collaborative middle ground? I've been really fond of using the word financial intimacy. I imagine you probably use that as well, right? that a couple is fostering financial intimacy by having these open exploratory conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how I think about it is um, as weird as this sounds, bringing intimacy as a couple into the financial realm um, is something I think a lot of people don't think about. Um, and a lot of times we think intimacy is sex, but it's not. Um, intimacy is closeness and it's trust and it's, um, you know, shared shared desires and values. It does make itself into the bedroom, which is great, but it also is um, you can have closeness and trust and 
hope, all of these kinds of things that intimacy brings in our financial ventures as well. Is that, you know, I, I think about the first, the first three that come to my mind are sexual intimacy, which you, I think most people kind of think of automatically, right? And then there's mm-hmm. emotional intimacy, mm-hmm. which is kind of that more relational being able to just know and enjoy someone's company and be, feel close to them. And then financial intimacy is that really knowing and understanding yourself and your partner and what motivates you, what also leaves you afraid around money. And then how to work with your partner around that so that you're not violating those places of fear and anxiety around money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Nate, we're going to talk on this podcast a lot about attachment theory. I know that you've done a good bit of studying and reading on this. You're familiar with and work with Sue Johnson's Emotionally Focused Therapy. Can you describe in your own words um, the importance of attachment theory and attachment styles and, and how that helps you understand uh, the clients that you're working with now. Yeah, it's really hard to condense all all the my, all the thoughts that I have. But um, so the way I think about attachment theory is um, we have needs as humans to connect with others and to connect in ways that help us feel safe and secure. Um, these needs get are uh, literally hardwired into our brain. Um, These are, it's the reasons that babies that don't get held and don't get nurtured often pass away. Um, And, you know, they have whole hospital wings where they have nurses and people that hold babies. And it's because in order for the brain to fully develop, the baby needs to know there is a safe and secure person that I'm connected to. Um, That idea, um, manifests itself across the lifespan and in early childhood as we're learning how to appropriately engage in relationships um, we have what what we call a secure attachment ideally so it could be a parent or a caregiver that teaches us when I have a need I can go to this person and get that need met so when we have our needs met consistently Um, Throughout our lifetime, we begin to trust people more and we begin to trust ourselves more that the world is generally safe and that we can engage in meaningful ways in relationships. Because for the most part, um, you know, people are humans. They're not going to be perfect, but I can go to a relationship and get, get my needs met. So as that relates to couples, when a couple has... Uh, consistent ways to show each other that they are safe in the relationship, Um, not just physically, but emotionally, that their emotions matter, that their emotions are real and valid, and that um, you can come for me for comfort. And then secure, which means that when you know know that I'm here, that you can come back to home, um, you feel more safe and exploratory and making decisions in your life that are more in line with your values as opposed to just reacting to the fear. So anyway, I feel like this is maybe deeper. No, this is beautiful. I really like you threading through this line from infancy through adulthood and being held and that there's this knowing that babies have that they need to be connected. And it's not one that obviously babies can communicate in language, adult language, but when they cry, 
Right. Um, attachment theory, we call that separation distress sometimes. And so an attuned mother will know the difference between a tired baby, a baby that needs to connect, and a baby that's hungry. Mm-hmm. And we'll work to try to sort that out. And it may not always be immediately obvious, but they're working towards it. And that consistency piece is important. But you said also, I think we're not perfect, right? Like no caregiver has to get this right all the time. And actually, I think the science points to that we should mess it up or can expect to mess it up. And that's not the problem. But really, when we can recover well and recognize that we've missed a chance for bonding and connection, that that's really what's important. Right. This, And then this sets the foundation, right? The psychological foundation for when couples are making money decisions together. Because if they don't have secure attachment as their primary Uh, psychological makeup, how does that then impact the way that they're going to approach money conversations with each other, do you think? Yeah, well, I think, um, so in an ideal world, let's say I have a secure attachment relationship with my partner where I know I can get my needs met and that they're generally very safe. Um, Then when I'm trying to figure out um, either a money decision or money conflict, Right. My whole world isn't being rocked when my partner disagrees with me or if we have a conflict. <laughs> and it's not this huge, like, holy crap, how are we ever going to recover? It's like, okay, we have a disagreement <laughs> here. And I might be frustrated and annoyed, but I'm not going to this place of like, fear of abandonment or fear of... Um, that things aren't going to get better. It it just becomes another thing to work through. Um, but wait, can I interrupt there? I, yeah. You said my my whole world isn't getting rocked when there's mm-hmm. a money like that's the difference for someone with a secure attachment versus someone with an insecure attachment. Like I mean, and I know we're reducing it really down, but yeah, that experience of trying to make a money decision and when your partner disagrees with you, which in a healthy relationship is going to happen a decent bit, right? Right. Like, let's normalize the fact that couples and individuals within a coupleship are going to have different financial values. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have different financial priorities. And so the timing, even they may value the same thing, but the timing might be different. Right. So I'm just going to pick on your parents and make something up about them. So if sure. Nate's parents yeah. are listening, no, I'm making this up. I don't know if this <laughs> is true for them or not. But maybe they both really do value recreation and four wheelers. But mm-hmm. it was just a timing issue. Where dad thought now's the time and mom thought, you know, we got to get six months more down the road because then the bonus will come in and then we'll have the cash to pay for it. I'm making this up. Yeah. Right. But if Nathan's dad is more insecurely attached, he's afraid of not getting his need met or talking with it and dealing with that disappointment. So he avoids it. And we're making this up to respect their privacy and their relationship. But that's right. That's part of what we're talking about is if I go and tell my partner and I guess relational history starts to set this up for us, right? Is we know when we go to our partner and ask for certain things, we can kind of anticipate how they're going to respond. Mm-hmm. And when we know they're, we're not, we're going to get an answer we don't like. If we're insecurely attached, what do we do? We retreat into the coping mechanisms that have been helpful for us before. Um, so name some of those different coping mechanisms. What, what, are, what do you, what do you see when you're working with couples or t- walking them through this? It, I'll tell you my own because um, <laughs> those are the I, ones you know the best, right? Yeah, right. I know me. Yeah, um, yeah. For me, I f- I do a couple of things. One, I I definitely retreat. I am a you know you, you've heard of fight or flight responses, and oh, um, yeah. I'm a flyer. I <laughs> you got to look at one. I 
I'm generally pretty conflict avoidant. And so if I know that there's something that could bring up a conflict or something like that, I will avoid that like no one's business. I'm pretty skilled at it, honestly. Um, so, yeah, I will. I can misdirect. I can uh, I can change the conversation. I can physically leave the room sometimes. Um, and this is because my my body is not regulated during times of conflict. And I really struggle. And so when I have feelings of fear or anxiety, especially around relationship safety, and again, none of like, honestly, my wife is awesome. Like she's, this has nothing to do with her. This is about my own stuff. But when that happens for me, my first gut instinct is like, I got to run away from this. Otherwise I'm going to be hurt. I really appreciate your own self-awareness and ability to bring language to so much of this is in your body. It's that visceral in my gut and the, it's the physiology of attachment, right? Mm-hmm. Is you've had these relationship experiences that have been hardwired now into your brain that say when conflict arises, it's dangerous, it's threatening. Mm-hmm. And you, what you learned as a child is to it, to withdraw or fly. Right. And so these are not conscious. It's not like you're sitting there thinking like, okay, what do I need to do? Okay, Shelby and I, she's not going to like that. I'm going to bring up this money decision. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to just go ahead and leave the conversation. And I'm thinking through and verbal. It's mostly reflect, reflexive, right? Very much so. And uh, honestly, that's sometimes what makes it so frustrating is, you know, I'm a therapist. This is literally what I do and help people work through. <laughs> right, right. And that's insult to injury. When you're a therapist and you know what's going on and you still can't stop it from happening. Exactly. Yeah. No, and um, knowing, honestly, knowing that it's going on is a huge step. So if, if, you know, if you're working through recognizing your own kind of trauma responses or recognizing your own attachment coping skills that aren't as healthy, that's awesome. But it can be really frustrating recognizing, oh, I'm... I'm avoiding right now. Um, most of the time, if I recognize it in the moment, I'm, I can be like, okay, hang on. Let me take the break I need to. But a lot of times it's, you know, it's only after I leave or after the conflict gets bigger. And I'm like, crap, you know what? You're, I did exactly what I knew that I did, but I just did it again. Well, and that's part of that that override system, right? Is especially when we're in threat, we're no we're no longer in our conscious brain. Right. Our reflective part of our brain goes kind of offline. And so mm-hmm. we can that's why we can be doing all the bad behaviors and saying all the bad things or withdrawing and maybe not even recognize fully that we're doing it. Exactly. You don't recognize it until after. You don't recognize it until after because the threat's passed and then the reflective brain, as I understand the prefrontal cortex primarily, comes back online once the yep. threat's passed. And then you, and then that's where, for some of us, really the self-loathing and self-shaming comes into play, right? Mm-hmm. Is we start beating ourselves up and we're like, oh, how could I be so stupid to have done this or said this or avoided that or whatever? And I don't know if that's true for your own psychological process, but I certainly know it's true for mine. Uh, so a little self-disclosure on my side of the, 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 the microphone here. Uh, Nate, I'm really interested. So you and Shelby, you really named something that's so important is this isn't about her. 
Mm-hmm. You're you're fortunate to have a marital partner who sounds like is uh, emotionally warm, emotionally understanding. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah. And oh yeah, yeah. Good, 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 good. And, and so, you know, certainly we know that people are sometimes partnered with another person that's not there and doesn't have that to offer. Mm-hmm. But what I want to highlight is that many of us can enter into an intimate relationship where the partner actually is present and loving and emotionally warm enough, but that our attachment patterns can cause us to, to do what, even in light of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the hard thing is, is relationships are always yours, mine and ours. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, Please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. What I want to highlight is that many of us can enter into an intimate relationship where the partner actually is present and loving and emotionally warm enough, but that our attachment patterns can cause us to, to do what, even in light of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the hard thing is, is relationships are always yours, mine and ours, because okay. I have, you know, my attachment needs and my attachment reflexes, the things that I know how to do, my body knows how to do to keep me safe. Uh, and, you know, you Shelby, like Shelby has her own trauma, her own stuff that she responds to she responds to it differently than i do but it's still her stuff right then what happens is when my stuff and her stuff mixes together um (laughs) it it ends up being a lot bigger than i think our cognitive brain understands so it's like and shelby and i have done a lot of work on this both in couples therapy but just working on it um yeah yeah where like you mean reading books and talking through it is that what you mean yeah and um my partner is a phd student in family science and so we're, we're pretty reflective on our own relationship but safety in relationships yes it does come from our past experiences but if you have an insecure attachment style and you know that yeah that's something i sometimes too, it doesn't mean that that's how it's always going to be. Um, Mm. I said earlier, I was like, I I realized the power of what a positive relationship looked like, which is what made me want to go into couples therapy. Um, It's because I had kind of a anxious attachment with my parents. And then when I uh, started dating and eventually got married to Shelby, she helped me realize that relationships can be safe. And I would, mm. I would be able to go to her with a problem. A lot of times it was shame. Shame was a kind of a main thing that I'd been dealing with for a lot of different reasons. And she would respond in a way that made me feel safe and warm and loved and not judged. And uh. over time, as she was able to consistently 
kind of prove that to me. Like I was like, Oh my gosh, my, the way I've been looking at life is totally different. Um, yes. So, is it, I, I, I want to stop and highlight that just that, Oh my gosh, that flooding forward of like, I just, it's like this paradigm shifting. I mean, just this morning I was doing a little bit of my own inner work and drawing and it's, I don't know why I was listening to my own intuition on the drawing and I realized, oh, I'm doing a self-portrait. And then I drew a second self-portrait and I was like, and it was a much more accurate representation of myself in the mm-hmm. way that I drew it. I was like, oh my gosh. And so mm-hmm. that's, I wanted to highlight that because those are those moments when you know that you've hit a psychological growth. You've kind of pushed your own healing another notch forward. So, and so I really wanted to slow down and hone that and say, repetition is really such a critical piece of this whole attachment thing, isn't it? It's, it's not Shelby one time saying, Nate, I love you. It's okay that you responded this way. I understand it's coming out of your own hurt and past. Yes, maybe this hurt me the way you did that, but I understand the bigger context where this is coming from. Mm-hmm. I love you. That one time ain't going to change anything, probably. Right. Right. It's it's the repetition of that type of experience and walking through that dance multiple times and her showing up and looking you in the eyes and, and whatever your particular way of being with each other that really has helped get you to that. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair assessment of what you're kind of describing? So yeah. I think a lot of times people on this journey of building relational health can get really frustrated because it's like, well, we went to therapy and they told us how to do it and my partner just won't do it. What's wrong with them? And it's like, you know, hey, um, if you go to the gym one time and do sets of bicep curls, are your biceps any different? Uh, no. They're yeah. sore. They're <laughs> yeah. really sore. But you got to do it week in and week out to really get some nice looking biceps. Right. All right. So um, the relationship health is the same way, I think. Yeah. You said a word that I love, which is context. If I can kind of describe the difference in a and a relationship that is primarily secure versus a relationship that's primarily insecure is when crap happens and we're not our best selves, which is inevitable. It's just part of being human. And it's totally, we, we need to get to the point where we allow mistakes in our, our relationship, <laughs> but a securely attached relationship says, Oh, that was an exception. Uh, when my partner freaked out at me or, or yelled or something, my first thought is, wow, she must be really stressed or, or um, some context here that makes her the way she is. And I assign, right. I assign the meaning behind the behavior to something positive or not even po- not positive necessarily, but like it's is based in context and it has nothing to right. do with who she is. An insecure relationship sometimes feel like, Ah, because she blew up, it proves my belief that um, she's crazy or, or she's always yep. mad at me or whatever it is. And so uh-huh. what happens is when we can have consistent and meaningful changes, then inevitably when we do mess up again or we do have some kind of rift in the relationship where we repair and we come back and we say, hey, uh, this is what was going on for me at that time. I know that it affected you. I really am sorry. And we're able to assign it to circumstance right, rather than assign it to character. Um, mm, we assign it to circumstance instead of character. 
Mm -hmm. That is so powerful. That phrase, if people can capture that, um, that might be the gold nugget from this interview, at least for me, is if you can assign this to circumstance and not character, Mm -hmm. it totally changes the whole ball game. Right. And that's why I think it's important, honestly, to get informed about attachment styles, but get informed about trauma, get informed about what has gone on in your partner's life. Um, mm, mm. So oh, then, man, I'm, I'm excited where this is going. Just yeah. walk us straight into this. <laughs> well, when I know what's happened in my partner's life, uh, first of all, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, take away my partner's responsibility here. Um, and that's important. Okay. Just because I have trauma doesn't mean I get to act like a jerk. Um, <laughs> right. But when I do act like a jerk and then I come back and I say, Hey, I was acting like a jerk and this is really hard for me. And you understand what's gone on in my past. It's a lot easier to see me in a kinder light. Well, and it's that taking personal responsibility for having shown up like a jerk. Mm-hmm. Right. Or a crybaby, or a whiny, uh, you know, I'm going to just say it, a whiny bitch. That's uh-huh. like some people use that language. I feel really uncomfortable using that language. Yeah. I, 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 I really cringe. It's hard, but I know that that's a self-descriptive word that a lot of people use. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of self-descriptive words that are reflective of being in a non-secure state of mind, a non-relational state of mind. So keep walking us in. So when we understand our partner's trauma and it's okay. So I know that uh, my partner's and I'm, I'm going to make this up, but God, I don't, this is tough. So trigger warning for anybody that's listening is, you know, I know that my partner was sexually abused by their uncle and I'm intentionally leaving that gender neutral because I know that both boys and girls are sexually abused and it's not just by men, but also by females. So, and, and it's just pervasive in people's backgrounds. Right. I mean, I don't remember the statistics, but it is, it's large. Yeah. And so we know as therapists that many people are partnered with someone that has experienced some form of sexual abuse, um, and invasion and sexuality. So can we go there? Can we talk about that and that, how that your partner's trauma of of sexual abuse of, of any type may be impacting the attachment relationship? And then I'm going to ask you to fold this over into the way it shows up around their money. Yeah. So what I see a lot with my clients who experience that kind of sexual trauma is it's very difficult to, and of course, everybody's story is different, but it's really difficult for them to explore the idea um, that I can be vulnerable with you and you won't hurt me because there've been other times in my life when I was maybe forced into a very vulnerable position that, and I was hurt. And I was, yeah. um, and I have a whole lot of leftovers um, unless they've done a lot of individual therapy and, and really processed the impact of that experience on their, that trauma on their life, it's going to come up. And so the, the hard thing about trauma is it doesn't always come up in the way we expect, you know, mm. sometimes we, we have this one, I think a lot of society and quite honestly, even therapists have um, perceptions of trauma looks like this. Trauma is 
PTSD, when PTSD is a experience that can come from trauma, but it can right. show up in a lot of other ways. There's relationship difficulties or difficulties uh, being vulnerable or, um, or secrets or hiding. Yeah. What about even like sitting down to talk through the shared family finances? Mm-hmm. Like what, what I've seen um, when there's sexual abuse history is the partner that's been abused has a hard time preparing for and understanding that this relationship is long-term. They, they might've been married for 15 years um, and, and in their cognitive, and this is important in their cognitive brain, they know that this marriage is probably long-term and, you know, uh, and we're in, Mm, we, it's mm -hmm. not a bad idea to prepare for 15 years in the financial future, but their trauma, which is located in our our amygdala, it's a totally different part of the brain. Um, Trauma brain is saying things aren't going to be safe. I don't like, I, I need to escape. Um, this relationship could end any time. Right. And so what I could see that as behaviors is then it's, um, they're not being intentional about um, making certain financial decisions or having financial conversations because part of their brain is like, this is, this is scary. You know, it's been right under my nose, but the way you just language this is so powerful. Something just flipped or switched in my own mind is that the logical brain can say, yeah, I recognize we've been married for 15 years. Like, so yeah, this is a long-term relationship, but then the, the trauma stored in our brain may have us in this kind of continuous, like, I never know when this relationship is going to end, which stops people from projecting forward into the future, which is really a critical psychological process for building financial security is being able to imagine oneself into the future and imagine the relationship is still going to be there in the future. And so if you don't, if you have trouble imagining that your relationship can be existed into the future, 25 years of marriage, 40 years of marriage, then kind of there's this, what, like, why bother saving for the future? Or I can't really coordinate with this person. There's a couple of different, probably common narratives that start to show up there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's a really big deal. So, Nate, you talked about earlier at this episode, and we'll, we'll maybe we'll camp on EMDR, and then we'll bring this episode to a, a close. As as much as I could talk to you for hours about this, I, <laughs> you know, I love it. Uh, there would be a part two to this conversation for sure. But for the listeners who are not familiar with EMDR, or maybe who are, but Nate maybe have had a bad experience with it, or you know, they're just they want to learn more. Tell us a little bit about EMDR, trauma, and what you see happening there in that work. And and I'm curious, do you practice EMDR with the partner there in the room, or do you do it individually? Yeah, I, I've done both. So EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Basically, it's a model of therapy that's been uh, shown to have very, it's very good at treating trauma. Um, it's for sure, everyone is allowed their own experience with EMDR, but um, it is something that's been well-researched for over 30 years. Um, 
quick version of it is instead of just traditional talk therapy, um, there's some, we call it bilateral stimulation, but it can be eye movement. So maybe you put your finger in front of their, the client's eyes and they follow your finger while they're talking about their trauma. I actually don't use the eye movements a whole lot. I have little, um, they're little vibrating handheld yeah, tools. Yeah. So basically they're just, they just do a little buzz in your hand, but it goes left, yeah. right, left, right, left, right. And yeah. the theory behind it is it mimics the pacing and the things that your eyes do during REM sleep, which is uh, when, when you're going into REM sleep, your eyes do move left and right. It's a physiological thing that happens. And the theory is that helps your brain process information of the day. And so by talking about trauma while, while kind of, I'm thinking about kickstarting your processing engine in your brain, yeah, it helps right. desensitize the memory so that we don't feel as strongly as we did. And then we can learn to reprocess it. Whereas like, Oh, that, that bad thing happened instead of, uh, I'm not safe or I I'm out of control or it's not safe to share my emotions. I can reprocess the belief to be, I am safe now. I am in control now and I can choose to share my emotions. And it, it's a way to process some of these deep seated traumas. So safety has been something that's come up throughout this whole interview and safety. I mean, I'm kind of sold on it is actually the foundation of building financial security and freedom. Mm-hmm. Right. But the, what you brought up here in this last part about processing trauma is I'm in control or I'm out of control. And I know from my years of working with people, money is one of those things that's going to bring you into that feeling of being out of control so fast. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if you're working on any money project, whether it's your savings plan, your retirement plan, insurance, taxes, estate planning, those are the big five areas. If you're feeling out of control, it might, yes, on the surface be about your money, but Nate, do you think it could also be about past unresolved trauma that's being triggered? Absolutely. Um, and I, I think a good financial therapist would ask, in what other areas of your life do you feel out of control? Oh, oh there's. I, I want everyone to pick this up. I, I, you felt it in your body. I know I felt it as soon as I heard Nate say it. Mm-hmm. I, I can imagine being in, in financial therapy with you, Nate, and I would love for you to ask me that question. Like, there's a part of me right now that just wants to be your client. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be so silly. I'm just be like, I just want to lay on the couch and have Nate ask me that question and then respond. <laughs> that question, so good. Let's end there. That's a highlight because that's a self-reflective question that people can also use, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, be in a good place with yourself. Make sure that you feel safe, that you can process anything difficult that comes up. But if you're feeling out of control around your finances, you can maybe use a little self-reflective process and say, where else have I felt out of control or where else do I feel out of control? Is this a part of a bigger theme for me? Right. Because it, it is likely part of your trauma history. Nate, your warmth, your compassion, your kindness is outstanding. I'm so appreciative of it. I can't wait to see what you do with your career in financial therapy and how, how you impact people's lives positively. If people want to connect with you, work with you, anything with you, what's the best way to go about that? Yeah, um, you can find me. um, So my business is called Relational Money. So just relationalmoney.com. And then I'm on, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and on Twitter. um, And so just look up Nathan Nastel. 
probably financial therapist. Um, there's another Nathan Astle that's a famous uh, New Zealand cricket player, but I am <laughs> unfortunately not him. So, yeah. Um, and, yeah, feel free to reach out. Um, I do I accept therapy and coaching clients. And um, even if I'm not a good fit for you, I'm more than happy to, you know, point you in the direction that I think might be helpful. Hey, what an incredible interview. Thank you for your generosity of time and spirit. And uh, we'll look forward to talking with you again soon. Thanks so much, Ed. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.